Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo, Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin, and Correspondent John Evans. Hello all. This week we are going to start off with Seaspiracy, because we've been writing a lot about Seaspiracy, and the Netflix documentary has taken over social media uh, and raised all kinds of furor, I guess you could say. Uh, and we were right there in the middle of it. And uh, a commentator pointed out last week on our podcast that only 33% of us had seen the uh, the documentary. And he was chiding us, or she, it wasn't clear, was chiding us for that. And now, Mr. Commentator, 75% of us have seen it. So there. Um, but why don't we go ahead and, and talk uh, about the fallout from all this. Rachel, maybe start with you. It has been fascinating, fascinating, fascinating to see the reactions in particular on social media. Um, what are your sort of thoughts about um, what has happened since the documentary uh, came out and the reactions? Um, I just personally learned a lot more about the the filmmaker or the doc documentary maker and uh, how it was put together and um, was very interested in the source reactions to it. And it sounds like a lot of the time he was pretty covert in his identity, what he was asking them, how the film was edited. Um, so even though I think the film, after watching it, you know, it does bring up some very relevant and uh, concerning issues that are happening um, in terms of the ocean and climate change and seafood. Um, the way he went about the documentary to me is still, I'm just not a fan of that like Michael Moore style documentary. I just really have never, I don't know. I just don't think you get the best information that way. Um, but I'm always for transparency and, and you know, really trying to make um, journalism as a um, industry, as a, job as transparent as possible so that's that's just where i come from i guess no i i totally agree and i think that was my first that was the first difficult reaction i had to get over was viewing it as a piece of journalism was really the wrong lens to see it through i think for me uh anyway because it really isn't journalism and i kind of but it's purporting to deliver um deliver facts and I totally agree with you, Rachel. That's that was initially, I think, that set the stage for me to not have trust in what I was seeing. And so we're coming from a place of being journalists, and and as you said, uh, Rachel, um, there's um, professional responsibilities and expectations that come along with that when you are reporting on, um, you know, really high risk issues. There are some um, sometimes that people do need to go undercover or or whatnot but um the filmmaker certainly very very early on put himself in the middle as the star as the one in danger and my first thought was you're not really in danger it's the sources that you're talking to that are in danger by talking to you so i thought right off the bat that it was um it was uh, as a piece of journalism already uh problematic kind of from the jump um, John Fiorillo, um, why don't you talk a little bit, you had seen it the last time and gave kind of an overview of the, the findings. 
since it's sort of been out um, circulating around social media, what's your thoughts about um, the industry reaction and how uh, how the response has been from the industry side of things? Yeah, the industry, uh, you know, shifted into gear uh, pretty heavily in the days right after uh, right after the airing of the documentary and uh, Ray Hilborn, UW. Uh, scientist, fishery scientist, renowned scientist, um, has come out and d- done a rebuttal, and others have too. And um, you know that's to be expected. Uh, how much it, it helps um, in the broader scheme of things, as far as all the tens of millions of people who viewed this, I I don't really know. Um, one thing that caught my attention a little bit was just the industry's reaction was fragmented <laughs> to say the least, just, just like the industry is, you know, a lot of different people came out and picked apart, um, correctly picked apart certain aspects of the thing of the documentary. But again, there was no unified industry response. Um, and in a case like this, could you have had a, a unified response? You know, one, one group that spoke for the industry, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's difficult. This is a very global industry, as we all know. But you know, when when you when you give a fragmented response from a bunch of different sources, it just kind of waters it down because each one of them is fighting to get their message out. So that that, that was kind of my takeaway um, from the industry's response, and. You know, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. You know, we we as seafood people uh, looked at the documentary through kind of our seafood eyes, right? And we we know, you know, the twenty forty eight stat, for example, is has been debunked and all that. But the tens of millions again who watched it, they're watching it through a different eye entirely. So whether it was fact or not. <laughs> it probably didn't really matter to a majority of those people who viewed it. Yeah, I I think that's kind of the most salient point. And, you know, going back to what you said earlier, Rachel, um, they brought up all the right issues. You know, these are not issues that don't exist. And I think the difficult part is the nuance of all this and seafood is incredibly complex uh, versus say chicken or beef, which is much more consolidated. You're dealing with one species oftentimes, or just a couple of, of different breeds even where seafood is incredibly complex. So when you see a uh, broken down, uh, rusted out factory trawler off the coast of the Gambia, where the crew is sleeping in, little you know hovels that's horrendous and that absolutely has to be stopped but um, that's quite a bit different than what's happening on say a 32 foot fishing vessel in Bristol Bay where that's an important part of the people's livelihoods or the you know um, tens and tens of millions of people that rely on seafood as a um, as a, a, a primary source primary protein but um, plastics, marine mammals, uh, overfishing, labor and slavery, 
um, issues around aquaculture. Those are all relevant. And I think I even found myself when people asked me about it, because a lot of people did, um, you know, we, like you said, John, we write about this. We've been writing about this for a long, long time. So most of these issues are not new to us. So for, for, for those of us that have been writing and covering the seafood sector for a long time, we know these criticisms. We've made these criticisms. We've followed uh, reporting on these issues for years and years and years. Um, but yeah, ultimately, um, it really doesn't matter. Um, the issues have been raised, and it's clear that the industry doesn't have any very clear way to explain what they're doing differently. Um, and I think that's, that's hard, but, um, you know, I, I think it's relevant to ask the industry, what are you doing about plastics? What are you doing about marine mammals? They, they need to actually catalog and show these things. Now, some have sea fish put out a, a, a good sort of list of, of, uh, things on, on their site and, uh, the national fisheries Institute and other groups, global aquaculture Alliance have all had their responses, but, you know, these are trade associations and people are going to be naturally sort of skeptical of that, naturally skeptical of companies, um, you know, so there's there's no real easy way. Um, but I think provided that so much of the seafood industry has these issues, it's going to color sort of what we think of as the mainstream uh, industry that we've seen evolve and develop and also the small scale fisheries that have become uh, that are sustainable um, that are providing um, sustainable food for the local population and for uh, for consumers so it's not it's not an easy uh, not an easy issue um, at all um, Rachel I'm curious what you thought about just you know, you talked about this last week, and you were saying that you you watched uh, another Netflix documentary on uh, QAnon or HBO. I can't remember, but you were you were saying that you'd watch that. Um, what's your thoughts about how this played out on social media, and whether or not, um, you know, how that colored the the reaction among the industry and just among you know consumers? Well, yeah, and I just was thinking too in relation to um you know what you were talking about was back to seaspiracy i think um one of the issues one of the real concerning things i find about that documentary is the fact that the like the solution uh, i do agree with like climate change is happening now absolutely and whether the oceans are going to be messed up in 2048 or 10 years later i mean companies need to be doing a ton more including seafood that is, you know, I do not disagree with that point at all. Um, I do disagree with trying to fight capitalism with, a, like, other capitalism. <laughs> like, you know, like plant-based companies are for-profit companies that operate in very similar ways to seafood companies. Um, you know, at this job, we talk to a lot of uh, CEOs and, and you know, we kind of learn the ins and outs of how a lot of private businesses work. And... Uh, you know, it's really hard to change things if companies are just operating in the same way, <laughs> just on different ends of a business model. Um, so that's kind of, I just think, what makes just eating plant-based uh, not really a solution to this issue. But um, yeah, getting back to QAnon, I did finish that documentary, and it really had me thinking about, you know, during times where the world is in panic, um, it just seems that 
you know, it's it's very comforting, I think, to to kind of follow these exciting stories where you have the clear cut villains and heroes and you can kind of frame yourself within that, <laughs> you know, like it's me as the consumer can can save the world. And um, I hate to say it, but it, it just feels very, the whole thing feels very like in a way cult-like, right? Like you can't actually analyze what's going on or you'll be labeled as being paid by the seafood companies or some sort of a shill. And, and any situation where you can't actually question how something was put together um it's just not usually that doesn't bode well for that being a uh you know a, a helpful discussion to actually improve issues we need to be working on uh you know such as climate change um i know i'm not as elo eloquent as this filmmaker when i talk about this stuff but to me i just i feel you know i really do like uh you know i like something where you can be allowed to question how it was made <coughs> you can do critical thinking, um, you know, without being reprimanded for it, um, for not believing um, these very, you know, visceral, intense uh, images that this filmmaker presented. And I, I do think he did a good job of presenting us with just, you know, a lot of horrifying, terrible images and issues that go on in the seafood industry, but um, doing so in a way that kind of, you know, uh, just made simplified the issues too much. So it kind of complicated, you know, it made it more complicated in a way because now, uh, you know, we're kind of getting lost in uh, in this person's narrative and we're not able to get out of his way of looking at it. I don't know. I'm still yeah, trying no. to like process how I think about it, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that's a great point. He oversimplified it to the point that it's become very complicated. It, it it does that seems like a paradox, but it, it it's true. And trying the industry's you know trying to pull itself out of the box here of criticism, and and that's that's not easy. I guess for me now the, you know where my mind is now is okay, what is the impact of this? How many people really are going to pass up seafood at the grocery store? We'll probably never be able to measure that. I don't think, but beyond that. What has the industry learned from this? What what are we going to do to, you know, certainly correct all the problems that we know are out there? But, and a lot of work is being done all the time to do that. So the idea that nothing is being done is, is incorrect. But in, in a broader sense, what are we going to do beyond this point to not prevent this from happening again, but dealing with this should it happen again or when it happens again and i i i think that's where the thought process needs to to move to in my opinion hmm. yeah i i don't you know i don't know what uh yeah ultimately there's no way to know kind of what the the impact's going to be on consumption but i will say that um that the uh documentary uh ali tabrizi uh, he's under 30 years old, um, obviously idealistic person and a vegan and, um, and, and he probably represents a lot more of what, um, what the next generation is going to be mm -hmm. interested and concerned with. And so it, it's, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm mixing up my metaphors here, but it is kind of a canary in the coal mine that, the industry, the, the fisheries and aquaculture industries should be looking at of, okay, this is our new consumer. So what, 
what is it that we need to communicate? And the way you do it is you, first off, you do the right things. Um, and you start to put a lot more money into sustainability initiatives, really visible sustainability initiatives. And there are a lot of companies doing that. Um, but, but it needs to be a lot, a lot more. And that means, uh, that means partnerships with research institutions and there are companies doing that. And that means being vocal about it and being clear about it because there are some really, really, um, great projects that are being done to rebuild uh, ecosystems by the fisheries and aquaculture industries. But um, if they're kind of piecemeal and they're not communicated, um, I think it's going to be very hard for, for consumers to feel really good about, uh, uh, good about um, eating seafood in the future. Now, I will say, Rachel, you brought up a really good point, and and I really like that. <laughs> really like what you said about the idea of capitalism fighting capitalism and sort of swapping one form of industrial uh, agriculture for another. Um, a lot of people made this argument, and it's kind of that what aboutism argument. So I don't know that it holds a lot of water, but um, I, I won't. I won't make the arguments again because there were so many people on social media that were that knew so much more about it and were so much more articulate about it but the amount of uh of of arable land that you need to produce crops and the amount of water that you need to produce crops is significant it's not without its impacts and so everything we do as human beings is going to have an impact and it really is it's unfortunately um we got ourselves in this mess by of, over years and years and years of not <laughs> of of um of behaving in ways that's been wasteful but i there aren't any big moonshot fixes and it really is unfortunately it doesn't feel good to look and say it's going to be a long time before we address these things but it really is incremental changes it really is small things and companies can make uh, a big difference in how they um and in in uh in in the areas that they operate in um but in addition it's going to take um it's going to take a lot of smaller moves forward rather than some big sweeping thing like just going uh to plant-based foods you, you did mention knowing the new consumer and um i think that that cannot be downplayed at all because i have two you know 20 early 20 year olds and their outlook on food is is uh i would say somewhat different than mine but the the plant-based foods association just kicked out their annual report where they report the increases in uh, plant-based food sales in the u.s but they had a, a portion in there about consumers and uh one of their findings was while only 30 34% of baby boomers listed environmental concerns as a motivating factor for buying plant-based. 100% of Gen Z consumers uh, listed it as a, as a motivator. That, you know, that obviously is dramatic, a dramatic difference, but I think it's fairly accurate uh, just judging by, you know, my experience with 20-somethings. Um, so, when it comes to a seafood company, what do you do about that? Um, well, you know, some have chosen to get involved in plant-based and, you know, make it part of their offering. And I think 
that is probably going to become a lot more common uh, as we move through this time and space uh, with plant-based stuff. Um, uh, just, you know, looking at it as a line extension rather than, you know, something different than that. So we'll see. We'll see for sure. But um, I, will, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that develops in that direction. Yeah. I mean, were, were any of you surprised by the reactions at all from uh, from scientists and researchers on social media at all? Or do you feel uh, that's one area when I was watching the film that I felt was given really short uh, shrift was. Um, and again, we've all been doing this a long time. We've gone to conferences. We have read a bazillion reports talk to many, many, many scientists and just brilliant, brilliant researchers. And yet they, you know, they didn't feature in the documentary. And again, I think there's no reason why they should. It was not aimed at doing that. Um, but I'm just, just curious if, if you've been tracking uh, any of the responses from, from scientists. Um, Rachel, any that you've seen that were um, interesting or caught your eye? Um, yeah, I mean, I mainly saw from scientists that they were uh, more concerned about having to uh, kind of debunk issues that they've been working their entire career to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, help uh, clarify. And I'm sure that's really frustrating um, if you spend all of your time on something and you just have all of your work get knocked out by, um, you know, some misinformation. Um, so, yeah, I just saw, you know, the, I think it's the same way, you know, we've had issues around, uh, in a way, it's somewhat similar to how people are concerned about getting a coronavirus uh, vaccine right now, right? Um, people who need to, who are at risk is that, you know, they've watched uh, uh, documentaries as well <laughs> that, uh, you know, purport um, to you know, give all these issues about uh, how these vaccines can harm you and how the government's going to implant a chip in your brain and that kind of stuff. But it, it sticks. And, you know, I think it's like John says, like it's scientists, you know, it's almost like they as well need to kind of figure out a way to combat misinformation is, is really what I hear them kind of uh, really trying to hash out on Twitter. Um, like you said, there, there were, um, I don't have a specific person, but um, you know, I guess one person I was reading is uh, Christina Border. I might not be pronouncing her name right, um, but she's a marine biologist in Canada, and, and she had a really good thread, if you can look her up on Twitter, and, um, you know, just talked about how uh, she sees the topics being addressed in a shallow, chaotic, confusing, and emotional manner, um, doesn't highlight the complexity of the problem, and, uh apart from being a long advertisement for the questionable sea shepherd and a manly display of dangerous undertaken dangers undertaken to uncover things most real experts could have told him the use of his facts is somewhat relaxed and numbers quoted are largely misrepresented so um you know it just sounds like they're you know trying to kind of uh explain what's going on on Twitter, but at the same time, like science, science has always had this issue, right? It's not something where it has a tidy ending to it. <laughs> science yeah. is always changing and it's really hard sometimes to make it fun and uh, exciting in that sense. Um, and yeah. a lot of journalism often gets scientists, science wrong because of this, right? Because we're trying to make it conclusive, whereas it's always changing. 
Yeah, I mean, science is hard, right? It, it takes time to go through and understand, and uh, it's not something you can convey uh, in a 60-minute, you know, uh, Netflix documentary most of the time. I mean, we just came out of four years of an administration that took science and vilified it and stuck it in a closet, okay? So if, if ever there's a time to honor science and at least attempt to understand science, it, it's now. And, you know, I think we talked about it last time, Drew. Um, you know, these reports have come, you know, damning reports about the industry have come out over the years. But this this confluence of social media and Netflix, this streaming uh, ability for somebody to, you know, get their documentary out or something like that. It, it's a new force. It's a powerful force. And it's, um, you know, it has to be reckoned with at some point uh, or the industry is, is vulnerable to even more of this, I think. Yeah. I, I, I mean, how do you, I, I think you brought up a really, both of you brought up really good points about, um, about science and, and how to elevate those voices. And that must be incredibly frustrating. The amount of work I have such respect for, uh, for fisheries researchers, because they are researching things that they can't see <laughs> that are, they are researching, um, you know, areas that are just massive, um, and I, I just pulled this up because I want to read it. All right. The, the Alaska Pollock fishery in the, in the Bering Sea is, um, widely considered one of the most sustainable fisheries. I can already hear the comments rolling in <laughs> below, <laughs> below, but, but it is, it's a quota based system and, uh, I'm sure there'll be detractors and defenders, but anyway, anyway, um, but I just want to, because I know, uh, and we've talked to many of the researchers that work on this, right? And here is something about the abundance and distribution of age zero walleye pollock in the Eastern Bering Sea Shelf. All right, are you ready? So they talk about how they collected the data. And here they're talking about the acoustic equipment calibration and data collection. I'll just read you a little. Acoustic backscatter measurement, I can't even say it. Acoustic backscatter measurements were collected 24 hours per day using a Simrad EK60 echo sounder operating a five split beam transducer at frequencies of 18, 38, 70, 120, and 200 kilohertz. All transducers were mounted on the bottom of the vessel's retractable centerboard, which extended 7.6 meters below the surface during the survey. survey. Again, I can't even say it. This is a 150-page <laughs> report. I'm just describing the equipment that they used. Um, when you look through these, it's like you said, Rachel, when we have to write about these things, um, I mean, the formulas, the formulas that are used, I mean, these are, they use epsilons. I mean, I, I, I didn't get past, I don't know, X plus Y equals Z, you know? And so when you're looking at the complexity of factoring in biomass, it's not just that they're doing this on the back of the napkin. They're not doing it by talking to um, the fishing companies and saying, well, wh how much do you want to fish? And um, they're not on the dole. I mean, these are really serious um, researchers that, that want to get this right and have dedicated their entire lives to it. 
does that mean they're able to fix or able to um, does that mean that it excuses kind of the the overseas uh, some of what's happening in um, in, in uh, different uh, different parts of the world? No, but but I, I just wanted to highlight that. Um, one other thing I do want to mention though, and it was brought up on social media a bit, and I I really had uh, an issue with this as well, and was concerned uh, by it, and. Um, uh, a fellow named Chris Williams, who's with the New Economics Foundation, brought this up, and so I have to give him credit on it. But it was going through my mind. He was just able to articulate it um, in uh, in, a, in an interesting way. But one of the first things that I wrote down in my notes as I was watching it was I really questioned the way that um, we did have kind of a white savior thing going on here. Um, and we had a very, very uh, – privileged view on the food systems and so a lot of people have brought up again the amount of of, of people that rely on fisheries as an economic uh as, as a job uh and as a source of protein um but that is something where um i really think uh there needs to be more attention as well a lot of these coastal communities are indigenous people and they're local people and they uh the the way they were uh described and portrayed i thought was um was was really disturbing um it first started with japan where it said japan was notorious for its uh you know its corrupt fishing practices um and when they went to taiji where uh the the dolphin um i guess you could say the dolphin slaughter uh that was pictured in the portrayed in the cove happened i mean there was discussions of the yakuza um the phones being bugged i mean they really really i thought um you know really uh, painted a a pretty racist picture of the japanese and their view on the seafood industry um, and, and quotes like they're trying to get rid of people who are opposed to their war on dolphins and that everybody was involved in it. Um, and again, the, the people that were shown oftentimes in the film were people uh, of color or people that were, um, you know, a lot of times not really the ones that were responsible for uh, what was uh, what was happening. Um, but um, but. You know, I, I don't know if that bothered any of you guys, but I that really jumped out at me as okay. How do you how do you raise these challenges um, without ultimately saying, you know what, this is bad. Let's let these problems all exist somewhere where we can't see them, and we'll eat very expensive vegan shrimp. Um, I don't know, Rachel. Did did that jump out at you? Because it sure did for me. Yeah, and I also, you know, I gotta come to Tub Breezy's um his defense a little bit. Um, I think he's the uh, son of Iranian immigrants to the UK, so he is from the UK. But um, I wouldn't consider him white per se. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think overall it definitely followed the way he put the documentary together. Certainly followed other kind of white savior um models <laughs> for sure. Um. And I don't know if that was intentionally on his part or not. Um, but I guess I, I also agree with you that I think it was very lacking in terms of um, interviews with, um, you know, yeah, indigenous uh, communities that live along the coast and uh, have like deep ties to, to fishing. I mean, uh, the First Nations in British Columbia comes up as one example. Um, they are very tied to fishing and, and their historical practices, fishing 
salmon. Um, obviously, they have huge issues with the major companies that are uh, that are producing and harvesting fish through net pens in British Columbia. So it's it's a complicated issue, um, and I agree with you that um, he wasn't able to cover that in the way he approached the documentary, um, just because he was, um, you know, trying to expose so many things. It was a, a really, you know, um, but yeah, so I think uh, a lot of that was lost in uh, the production of, uh, of Seaspiracy, uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> I guess. I do want to add about the the filmmaker too, and thanks for bringing that up about him being a, his family being migrants to the UK. But I do want to bring up about him too. This is and it's going to make me sound old, and it's going to make me sound condescending. And so Ali, if you happen to listen to this, I apologize. But he's a kid, and again, he's he's coming to this using just his own research skills. To my knowledge, he doesn't have a background in journalism, and so. This is somebody who's taking what they are seeing online, uh, taking what uh, is being presented to them by media savvy groups like Sea Shepherd, and um, and they're doing their best with it and trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, and I, I think therein lies another part of the uh, of the problem is um, again because he's not a trained journalist, he was pretty quick to just sort of take these celebrity environmentalist words which are have been very uh, have been questioned a lot um like uh like paul watson of sea shepherd his methods and uh and his science so um so i what i found interesting though and telling uh of, of the whole film was when he sat down and i apologize i don't have the name of the person but when he sat down with one of the faroese um whalers who Wow. Uh, oh, his name is uh, Jens Rasmussen. Um, first off, go Jens for agreeing to sit down with a documentary filmmaker. That uh, Good on you. The Marine Stewardship Council did not, and that came back to bite him, but Jens did. And what was interesting is, you know, he said one, one whale is equals 2,000 chickens. Now, a lot of people would disagree with that for a lot of different reasons. Jens, I don't know if that's um, quite the way that we can look at it, um, especially when so many marine mammals are endangered. But I will say that when I saw Tabrisi's interaction there, the, suddenly you could see that this didn't quite fit the narrative. It didn't quite the 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 filming of the slaughter. That's hard to watch um, if you are an animal lover or if you um are are um really questioning why whales should be used as a as in part of the food supply it is important to native groups uh, in ceremonial ways by the way and so people need to be aware of that um and uh, you know I, I i think that was difficult to watch but um but when when Tabrizi sat down with him, suddenly you could see, and this happens to all of us as journalists, when you suddenly think you go in on an issue and you have an opinion and you get it and you go ready in there with your angle already in your head. We've all done it as journalists. And then suddenly you go, especially when you're a young journalist, and you go, wait a minute, this is more complicated than I thought. This is This is not easy. Um, but I kind of wanted to see more of that. And I think you brought it up, uh, Rachel, that I would like to have seen uh, Tabrizi, uh, and I bet he will, because there's no doubt he's going to go on to make other films. 
I would like to have seen him work with um, some researchers or a, a team of journalists to actually look at a specific issue. Um, because then I think that complexity could be brought. Um, it, it, all these things that we've talked about, when, when, uh, whether it's marine mammals or overfishing, that complexity can, can be squeezed into, uh, into maybe a 90-minute film um, and explained in such a way that can make sense to people so that they can really understand that, hmm, you know, maybe stopping eating fish isn't the thing that I isn't going to solve the problem and not necessarily the thing that's going to help, uh, help anything, but maybe not using plastic straws is or whatever it might be, or maybe lobbying my supermarket to not use plastic or, you know, maybe it's that I want to, you know, lobby against this type of fishing or whatever, but it's so complex that it's not that these aren't issues. It's just that um, he came to a very reductive conclusion that isn't ultimately isn't going to help because not eating seafood isn't going to help global warming. Like you said, Rachel, it's not going to bring that garbage out of the Pacific garbage patch um you know it's um again it's complex and nobody likes complexity it's hard to explain and like you said rachel it's so much easier when there's good guys and bad guys and you can feel like oh i can be a good guy if i do this but we've reached this level and i and online is is only you know social media is only making it worse where it does seem like there is you know, an Alexander the Great style approach to these Gordian knots. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm re reiterating what everybody's already said here and I apologize, but um, John, like you said, it's become science and fact and truth. It's, you can always, people can always step into the void and say, no, 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 no. This is a lot more simple than you think you're making it too complex. Just cut the Gordian knot in half. Um, it's not like that, and and uh, certainly not when uh, when the oceans uh, are involved, and um, and yeah. But I commend that these issues were um, brought to light to a lot of people that hadn't heard of them, um, and I think you know, for those of us that have written about seafood and fisheries and aquaculture for years and years and years, yes, these issues are um, maybe well known, and we kind of know the work that has been done on on them. But a lot of people sure didn't, and I've never had as many people ask me about what I do for a living um, as I as I did in the wake of Seaspiracy. So, um, anyway, so let's uh, let's see what happens next. All right, moving from uh, Netflix over to um, another complicated uh, ocean topic: uh, harmful algal blooms. And those of you that were just staying on to hear about Seaspiracy. Um, Bye. <laughs> We're going to talk about harmful algal blooms now. It's going to get complicated. Um, I'm sorry, Mr. Evans. I promise. It, it, John Evans always makes things exciting because he's got his British timber and he sounds so much more uh, interesting than, than us Americans. Um, but, uh, but John, this is, this is an issue that happens uh, seasonally, um, naturally occurring. But again, it does it does seem to be something that is being exacerbated by climate change. So just tell us as of now, what's been happening in, uh, in Chile in the last couple of weeks. 
Yeah, as you say, it seems to happen on the cusp of uh, or the transition from uh, summer to autumn in Chile. Um, and uh, this year is no different. Although, um, looking back to 2016, when there was um, a massive outbreak uh, of algal blooms, um, there was 39 million fish lost worth... Um, around $800 million, according to Global Aquaculture Alliance figures. Um, this time around so far, it's... Uh, and, and I'm just writing... As, as you were speaking now, I was writing the update for this. Um, around 4,244 metric tons of salmon have now been lost to uh, both low oxygen levels and algal blooms, which appear, um, for the reasons we mentioned, the, the, the uh, seasonal... Uh, reasons we mentioned um, another 295 tons has been added to the total since Wednesday so it's creeping up now whether it'll start surging again like coronavirus cases uh, in some areas of the of the world like here in Brazil we'll have to see but um, yes I mean um, the, the, the losses have been split between 12 sites in the Aysen region, region of uh, Chile and Los Lagos it was a um, the fact that one one was ahead of the other um, until uh, yesterday, but now they're pretty close, <clears throat> closely matched actually, above 2,000 tons apiece. Um, and uh, companies um, including Cook Aquaculture, Maui, um, uh, Aquachile Yadran, Multi Export, uh, and Granja Marina. Uh, Torna Galachionis uh, have either been hit by low oxygen levels or harmful algal blooms. It, the situation is not totally clear about who's been hit by what, although Cook Aquaculture did come back to us and tell us that th they were, had been hit by, um, uh, that they had been hit by um, low oxygen levels and not algal blooms. Um, so, yes, and. Um, in Los Lagos, Salmon, Salmonis Camanchaca has borne the brunt of the outbreak break, which has really happened since the middle of March in, in separate incidents in different parts of the, of the of the south there. Now, this is, you know, again, you were saying it's seasonal, John. Um, it, it also occurs in almost every salmon farming region, uh, but it, it has been... Increasing of late, Rachel, you wrote about um, movies um, uh, subsidiary in eastern Eastern Canada and Northern Harvest Sea Farms. I guess that's all now part of Movie Canada East. Um, but they had a mass die-off there that uh, really got them into hot water back in late 2019. Um, no pun intended, because it was warm water that created that low oxygen um, level. And they, you know, they were just saying this is, the, they called it uh, the new normal, uh, that there is going to be um, these uh, issues with climate change. And um, it's also in, in BC as well. Um, and of course, in, in Norway, there was a massive die off uh, related to that as well. Um, so this is an issue that is going, it's just one of the many issues related to climate that is going to, uh, that is going to affect the salmon farming industry and really any ocean based uh, aquaculture, uh, aquaculture sector. 
Um, John, is there what's being done or Rachel, you can jump in too, but what's being done to uh, mitigate or early warning systems? I mean, is there is there a lot of effort and money being put into that? One would think there is, given the you know, given the amount of, of money they're losing here. Um, in Chile, they have been um, taking measures. Um, as the Chilean Salmon Council uh, said to me yesterday, such, uh, such as putting bubble curtains and, and uh, um, greater oxygenization into the water where they where they can. Um, but one analyst, I was just in this um, piece that I'm writing up at the moment, one analyst we spoke to, our colleagues in the Norwegian um, uh, Norwegian arm of Intrafish, the analyst said to them that anything under 5,000 tonnes of dead salmon is, if not normal, at least completely uh, not unusual. So uh, just to put that into context. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see kind of how it progresses uh, and we'll keep right on top of it. But obviously these things jump very, very quickly. Uh, yesterday, they're, I mean, again, these volumes are quite low, but I mean, it did jump pretty significantly between between the two most recent uh, Cern and Pesca updates, John. There was a pretty significant increase, correct? Yes, I mean, when you look closely at the figures again, it was it was more to do with how many have been removed rather than how many have died. When you first looked at it, it was uh, I think it had gone up about six hundred or something instead of instead of doubling. So we, when we first looked at it, we thought it had doubled, but actually it had gone up about six hundred uh, tons. That is, um, but still, I mean, it's uh, four thousand tons now, and if, if as the analyst said, if it gets beyond five thousand, then it becomes. Uh, no longer an ordinary incident. It's an absolute certainty that there will be uh, increasing algal blooms, um, you know, as as climate change continues. And so we're going to have to see uh, we're going to have to see what um, what uh, things the industry does to mitigate these. It's it's really not simple, but I think over time. Um, if you just look in our archives at the number of algal blooms that have happened over the pa- of the course of the past few years and some of the losses, um, you get a sense this is a major, major financial risk to companies. And so uh, they're, they're going to need to take some action. So we'll be looking at what some of those things are uh, and what some of the uh, new technology is to, um, to to take care of the issue and address it. And then John will be right on top of the uh, the blooms down in Chile as they're happening right now. And we'll, we'll see if they are uh, small, uh, if they get larger um, and, uh, and, and how things proceed. So thanks all i appreciate you for joining uh we'll look forward to uh to talking next week and just a reminder at the end of this month on the 20th and 21st we have our first aquaculture innovation summit and we will be talking about a range of uh fantastic new tech we're going to talk about offshore aquaculture we are going to talk about plant and cell-based seafood. Um, I'm really, really excited. We actually got a note today from a reader saying, wow, these are you know really, really interesting new voices we haven't heard from. Um, and that is the fun part that it's, um, yeah, there, there's some people that should lend some new uh, ideas and perspectives to, to what we're all um, used to hearing. So you can register there, go to intrafishevents.com and you can sign up that's a free event thanks to our sponsors 
Uh, and don't forget, you can go to intrafish.com and sign up for our newsletters there and uh, track us. We have a new, improved editor's picks newsletter. Uh, that's a weekly, uh, goes out on Sundays. So you can sign up for that. Excited to launch that. And uh, of course, if you're a subscriber to Interfish, you can sign up for alerts and get news on topics that matter to you right as they happen. All right. Thanks again for joining us, folks. And we'll talk to you next week.